Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Move down there so you don't have to do this all day. I don't care. You can just stay where you are. You're okay. good with me. Um, well, today is the 30th. We got it right. Yes. Um, and um, last week we uh, spent the week talking, spent the day talking about history, like the that issue with when Joseph went into um, Egypt and when he came out of Egypt and um, when Israel came out of Egypt because the movies just don't get it right. And um, so it's kind of important that we have an understanding of what's factual and what's not. Um, if for no other reason than just the idea that we need to be able to stand on our faith and say, it's not Hollywood. This is exactly when it happened. This is exactly the, the years and the dates. It's not a fantasy. You know, this really happened. And um, um, so while you don't have to have dates, it's, it's good to be able to say that Ramses lived hundreds of years before Joseph ever got there. The city of Ramses was already built. The 12th dynasty is the time period when they came in, um, you know, and, and those things are important. So if for no other reason, you need it for that. But um, it also kind of helps with the history as far as the shepherd kings. Because these shepherd kings, while they're not mentioned specifically, have a lot of influence and sway in scripture. Um, uh, you guys weren't here last week, but um, the, uh, there, there were a group of Canaanites who, before the 12th um, dynasty, uh, came into Egypt and they dwelt in the Delta area. They lived in the Delta area on the east side of the Nile. Okay, they came from Canaan, they were shepherds, but what they did was is form um, like a union or a realm. And then as these kings would rise up in these realms with delusions of grandeur, then they'd go after Egypt and try to take Egyptian cities. And even Thebes, they went after Thebes a couple of times, which you think, wow. Um, but they were a pain in, Israel, in Egypt's side all the time but they would wax and wane you know they never could take over egypt and never did they were called hyksos h-y-k-s-o-s just so you know how it's pronounced but they were shepherd kings is what they were called so when joseph came the hyksos were waning they weren't very strong at the time but they were there and um um, during his time of being there, when Egypt got to its zenith, because because of Joseph, Egypt got to its zenith. I mean, Joseph had stored up all that corn and everything so that um, um, Sesostris, who was the reigning pharaoh at the time, when when Joseph began to to take care of the corn during the famine, first of all. He took all the money of the people in the surrounding areas and from Egyptians. Money paid for the corn. Money paid, money paid. Eventually, the people ran out of money because the drought lasted seven years. 
Who took the money, Joseph? Mm-hmm. And put it in the king's coffers. And then when they ran out of money, they began to trade their cattle for food. So now Joseph is storing up all the cattle for Pharaoh, from, uh, not only from Egypt, but from all the surrounding areas, all the way up into Canaan. And once the um, cattle were gone, then people began to trade their land for food. And, and Pharaoh became wealthy in everything, land, cattle, and money. He had everything. He had collected because of Joseph. And Egypt was at its zenith, okay, um, and, and doing very well. And um, um, so then after Joseph dies, they have a series of really lousy pharaohs who squandered everything that, that Pharaoh had built up, spoiled it all until Egypt was just weak, the cities were falling into ruin. Then the Hyksos began to rise up again. The Canaanite realm that was sitting there in the delta began to cause more trouble. Well, at that point, um, that's when um, Joshua chapter 1 starts. I mean, uh, not Joshua, Exodus chapter 1 starts. Because the king had forgotten about Joseph because it had been 400 years, give or take a few, since or 300 years since Joseph came to Egypt and um, he didn't remember about Joseph. He just knew that there were millions of Israelites in Egypt and they had come there from Canaan. So there were Canaanites sitting out there in the Delta who were causing trouble and Pharaoh says, we're going to have to start crushing these Israelites for fear that they'll join with the, with the shepherd kings and run us over. And um, while the shepherd kings aren't mentioned, historically, that's the background for Pharaoh becoming fearful about the Egyptians. I mean, the Israelites. The Israelites hadn't caused any trouble, but the Hyksos had. And because they're all from Canaan, this Pharaoh says, I think we better enslave these Israelites, get them under control, start killing off the population, because otherwise they're going to join with the fellow Canaanites on the other side of the Nile and wipe us out. Makes sense. It does. And if you, if you, geographically, if you want to know where Goshen was, Goshen was right, if you're looking at Egypt and you see the Nile River that feeds out into, into the Mediterranean, okay, Goshen is right up at the top northeast corner of Egypt, all around that delta area in the northeast, which makes them the next door neighbor for the Hyksos anyway. Because that's primarily where the Israelites were in Egypt. That's in Goshen. That's where they lived in Goshen. Right, that's where Pharaoh planted them. And um, so they were practically neighbors of the Hyksos anyway. And... Um, so that's why they were being enslaved, you know, because uh, this well, Pharaoh was yeah. trying to get control of things. But, but the Hyksos aren't mentioned in Scripture. You have to understand the historical background in order to understand why Pharaoh would say, we have to do something with these Israelites lest they join up with another force and run us over. Look at Exodus chapter 1. 
start with verse 8. Now there rose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on and let's deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it come to pass that when there falls out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. And therefore they did set taskmasters over them to afflict them. The force that he's talking about is the Hyksos, unless they rise up and begin to attack again. But the Hyksos are also going to play a part here. Even though they're weak, Joseph is going to use that excuse with his brothers here in a few minutes. Um, because Joseph had um, stores of grain all over Egypt in these big cities, these outlying cities everywhere, these huge storage units of grain, um, outlying um, countries or people would try to come in and spy out the land and see which of the grain storages was vulnerable so that they could attack and take the grain. So Egypt was always on guard to try to protect the grain storages. Okay. So it wasn't unusual for spies to come in and look at look at the vulnerabilities, which would be the easier to take. How could we attack? So that Joseph uses that excuse with his brothers here in a minute. But you have to understand why he says that. Um, because the Hicksaws are right there doing that very thing. Well, and Joshua did it. Well, yeah. I mean, it's what, it's sure. what you did. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, you you know, so um, anyway, you have to understand that the Hicksaws, even though they're not mentioned by name, um, shepherd kings, that is mentioned in scripture, shepherd kings. The shepherd kings do cause grievous trouble to Egypt. But they've been there a long time. And they were from Canaan. So the very idea that, that Joseph and his family came from Canaan, that the Israelites came from Canaan, uh, you know, pretty much makes it easy to see how Israel could join with the Hyksos realm and run over Egypt, you know. Just so, so you need to have that understanding of history in order to understand some of what goes on with Joseph and his brothers here. So we're starting in chapter 42. And um, this is when finally, um, uh, I mean, the, the, um, the famine has been going on for some time. And finally, Jacob uh, runs out of corn or he's beginning to run out of food sources. So he has no choice but to send his sons to Egypt because that's the only place where um, there's any grain at all. And um, so um, in the traveling, the ten brothers are going to go. Ten brothers. The ten brothers that um, put Joseph into slavery in the first place are the ten that go down into Egypt. All right. Benjamin did not go. I think it's because Joseph knew his sons and wouldn't trust them, you know, very far. And so Benjamin did not go. So let's just read a little bit here. Um, now when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, 
Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I've heard that there is corn in Egypt. Get you down there and buy for us from thence that we may live and not die. And Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy corn in Egypt. But Benjamin, Joseph's brother, Jacob sent not with his brothers, for he said, Lest peradventure mischief, mischief befall him. And the sons of Israel came to buy corn among those that came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. And Joseph was the governor over the land, and he it was that sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves down before him with their faces to the earth. I know Joseph got it. I wondered if, I mean, eventually, and I'm sure the brothers had to think about it, but Joseph's first dream was about sheaves of wheat over food stuff. And he dreamed that the brothers' sheaves bowed down to him, if you remember that. And uh, Benjamin wasn't born then. So, you know, this was, um, this was his dream over food stuff. And here <clears throat> is the first of the dreams fulfilled. The, the brothers are laying flat on their bellies with their face in the dirt and their arms stretched out flat before the governor, before Joseph. Um, just John Darby had an interesting observation. He said, Joseph's brothers who had rejected him are brought by the path of repentance and humiliation to own him at length in glory whom they had once rejected. So now they're on the path to do that. They're, bringing, they're being brought by necessity to come um, and beg food corns from the Egyptians. And so here they are laying in the dirt with their face in the dirt before Joseph, not having any idea it was Joseph. Um, all to beg for food, you know, for the right to buy food. Um <clears throat> So his brothers bowed down flat before him. I'm sure Joseph thought of the dream immediately, but nothing's ever said about that. Um, so this is the beginning of planting Israel in Egypt. And Joseph, well, let's just see what Joseph does here. Verse 7. And Joseph saw his brothers, and he knew them. But he made himself strange to them, and he spoke roughly to them. And he said to them, um, Whence do you come? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph knew his brothers, but they knew him not. And Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed of them and said to them, You are spies to see the nakedness of the land you are come. He could easily tie them to the Hyksos because they just said they came from Canaan. And they said to him, Nay, my Lord, but to buy food are your servants come. We are all one man's sons, and we are true men. Your servants are no spies. And he said to him, No, but to see the nakedness of the land you were come. And they said, or the nakedness of the land literally means to find our vulnerabilities, is what he's saying. No, you come to find our vulnerabilities. And he said to them, Nay, but to see the nakedness of the land you were come. And they said, your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is not. That phrase, is not, means dead. Yeah. One is dead. 
And Joseph said to them, That is it that I speak unto you, saying, You are spies. Hereby you shall be proved. By the life of Pharaoh, you will not go forth hence except your youngest brother come here. Send one of you and let him fetch your brother, and you shall be kept in prison, that your words may be proved, whether there be any truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he says, send one of your brothers back to prove to me that you have a younger brother. Because if you can't prove to me you're a younger brother, then you're spies. That you have a younger brother than your spies. And um, he says, all of you will stay. And he put them together into ward for three days. So for three days, they sat in the very prison where Joseph spent years. Three solid days. <clears throat> and then Joseph said to them the third day, this do and live, for I fear God. Okay. If you be true men, let one of your brothers be bound in the house of your prison. You go, carry corn for the famine of your houses, but bring your youngest brother unto me. So shall your words be verified, and you will not die. And they did so. And they said one to another, we are very guilty. Now here it is. They're freely admitting now what they've done. We are very guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us. And we would not hear. And therefore this distress has come upon us. That, that verse broke my heart. This little 17 year old boy. What anguish of his soul must have been there. The crying and the hollering and the screaming for help. And they threw him in that pit. And sat down and ate a meal. And let that kid suffer. Not knowing if he was going to live or die. You know. And then they sold him into slavery. Can you imagine how he was yelling at them and asking them to save him when they sold him into slavery? Um, and yet they just sent him off. Heartless, cruel men. And they said, now it's come back on us. And Reuben answered them saying, I spoke not unto you. I spoke I not unto you saying, do not sin against the child. You wouldn't hear. Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. Of course, Reuben didn't jump in there when they decided to make up the story to tell his dad. And Reuben didn't go home and break it to his dad. They, they sent messengers because they were all so cowardly they couldn't face Jacob. They sent messengers with his coat home. They didn't even go and face their dad. And they knew not that Joseph understood them. For he spoke unto them by an interpreter. And he turned himself about from them and wept and returned to them again and communed with them and took from them Simeon and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph commanded to fill their sacks with corn and to restore every man's money into his sack to give them provision for the way. And thus did he unto them. So he took Simeon and put him back in the prison, which Simeon deserved that. I mean, he does so many terrible things, aside from planning on killing Joseph in the first place to literally having killed an entire city of men um, when they were at Shechem. Um, Simeon deserved to sit in a prison. Well, he ended up staying for more than a year. Um, but um, he deserved every bit of that. Does, and then, does verse 25 say Joseph didn't charge them? 
No, he didn't charge them. He said, give them their food and also give them their money back. Put the money in the mouth of their sacks. So they loaded up all of their donkeys and filled it up with corn as much as they could. And then he gave their money back and sent them on their way. And they laded their asses with the corn and departed thence. As one of them opened his sack to give his ass provender in the inn, he spied his money, for behold, it was in his sack's mouth. And he said to his brothers, My money's restored, and lo, it's even in my sack. And their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, What is this that God has done to us? Only guilty men would have feared a blessing. Only guilty men would have feared a blessing. You know, if you go into a store and you make a fair deal with somebody, you know, and um, um, you, at least for me, you know, you go up to check out and they go, you know, there's a 20% discount on this. You go, whoa, I'm going to take the 20% discount. Not because I did anything wrong, but I'm going to take the blessing of it, you know, or that I was trying to steal it. But, <clears throat> but the guilt in their hearts robbed them of even the thought of a blessing here. Um, <clears throat> so, um, if you just think about this, these brothers now have suffered some trauma, which is well-deserved on their part. Um, and in their attempt to save themselves, they reveal that they have another brother, Benjamin, at home with Jacob, trying to save themselves. They didn't try to hide Benjamin. They didn't try to hide Jacob. They let it all out. Um, so, in a sense, Jacob, I mean, I'm sure Joseph was overjoyed to know that Jacob, his dad, was still alive. And then he has a little brother, Benjamin, you know. But Joseph was masterful with his rebellious brothers, and he treated them exactly as they deserved to be treated. Um, and the guilt in their hearts just pours right out. Um, how often in their own mind's eye did they see Joseph's anguished face themselves? I wondered at night when they lay down if some of them didn't hear his voice. You know, how, how often did it plague them with guilt? Uh, so hot-headed Simeon remained. And Joseph was so gracious that he gave them ample corn and turned everything back. So now these brothers are getting a taste of Joseph's anguish. First of all, Simeon is in prison on false charges. The brothers were charged as well. His brothers were suffering great anguish of the soul because of their own guilt. They were fearful of facing their father um, to tell them that Simeon is gone and fearful of losing Benjamin. And there was a dread of returning to Egypt and being imprisoned themselves as thieves because now they had all their money back in their bags. Sure. So the anguish must have been just delicious. <laughs> John Gill says their minds were so pressed with the guilt of their sin that they were possessed of nothing but fears and dreadful apprehension of things and they put the worst construction upon them as they could men in such circumstances experience fear where no fear is or no occasion of it and they felt the weight of God's judgment but this is the sad thing they never asked for mercy they never cried out to God, and they never asked for mercy. So again, they return home to Jacob, and they tell Jacob the story. And um, Jacob, in his old age, 
um, has to face another tragedy. All his life, he's had one devastating tragedy after another. His whole life has just been miserable. But he's caused stuff. No He has caused every bit of it. Because from the very outset, God told his mom, Jacob is going to be blessed above his brother. You don't have to worry about it. His mom got into conniving. Jacob got into conniving. So Jacob runs into a conniving uncle who robs him of 14 years of his life, 20 years of his life. And um, then he has to face the brother that he wronged. Then he ends up in Shechem and ends up um, having to run for his life from Shechem. And in the meantime, his daughter Donna's been raped. Um, they get to the place where they're supposed to be. And then Joseph gets sold into slavery, although Jacob thinks he's dead. And the, and the list goes on. But in every bit of that, Jacob never once um, uh, attempted to call out to God for help. He never did. You never see Jacob falling on his face and crying out to God. You never do. Um, so start with verse 29. And they came to Jacob, their father, into the land of Canaan and told him all that befell them, saying, This man who is the Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. And we said to him, When we were true men, we're no spies. We be twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is not, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. And the man, the Lord of the country, said to us, Hereby shall I know you are true men. Leave one of your brothers here with me and take food for the famine for your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me. Then shall I know that you are no spies, but that you are true men. So will I deliver your brother and you shall traffic in the land. In other words, I'll deliver your brother to you when you come back and then you can do business in this land. You're allowed to do business here. And it came to pass, as they emptied their sacks, that behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when both they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, Me have you bereaved of my children. Joseph is not, and Simeon is not. And you will take Benjamin away? All these things are against me. So he's already reckoned Simeon dead. He didn't say, Joseph is dead and Simeon is in prison. He's already reckoned Simeon dead because he has no intention of going back. You're not taking Benjamin back there. So as far as we're concerned, Simeon's dead too. That's his attitude. <clears throat> 37. And Reuben spoke to his father saying, Slay my two sons if I bring him not to you. Deliver him into my hand, and I will bring him to you again. And he said, My son will not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If mischief befall him by the way in which you go, then shall you bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. In other words, I would die if something happened to Benjamin. I don't think I could live through it. So no, you're not going back to Egypt. So we're just reckoning Simeon dead. Joseph's dead. Simeon's dead. We're not going back to Egypt. And most people, I mean, you know, when we get into drought, and we've had a few, you always go, we can weather it. You know, you just suck it up, and you, and you go with what you got. 
You do the best you can. You buy grain where you need it. You do what you have to do. Pay more for your vegetables. But you just live through it knowing that it's short-lived. Jacob had no idea this famine was going to last seven years. He had no idea that he could not outlive it. But he could not outlive it. And eventually, he ends up having to send them back because they are desperate for food. So he either risks Benjamin's life in order to save the rest of his family, or they all die in the famine. I mean, that's how far down they are. Um, and so all he could see was more loss. You know, unlike Abraham, and this is the deal that gets me, Abraham had only one son. God had said to him, in your seed, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In your seed is a great nation. I will make a great nation, uh, you the father of a great nation, and then a father of many nations. Well, in order for that to happen, um, Isaac had to remain alive. He had to, because that's the only seed that Jacob had, I mean, that I, Abraham had. So when God said, you put your son on the altar, Abraham trusted God in covenant enough to say, okay, but if I put him on the altar, you're going to have to raise him from the dead. That's, go to Hebrews chapter 11. So this is the heart of Abraham, and look at this. Only two generations away, and Jacob has no faith. He really doesn't even know the God of Abraham and Isaac. He absolutely does not know the God of Abraham and Isaac. Okay, go to Hebrews 11. And it's funny because this chapter is about all the people of faith who lived and the great things that they did. When you get to Jacob, there's one little verse and it's pathetic about faith. I mean, it's just totally pathetic. Um, and it's at the very end of his life. The last thing he did, he had faith. There's nothing else in his life where faith is mentioned in Jacob's life. But look at verse 17. 11, 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he had, um, and he that had received the promises, and that's the important thing. Abraham believed God when God made that promise to him. And Abraham received that promise and he trusted God. He and God knew each other intimately. And Abraham trusted God and offered up his only begotten son, of whom it is said that in Isaac shall your seed be called. Because God had said to him, through Isaac, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed, which was really Jesus. But... Through Isaac, you will become the father of many nations and of a great nation, okay? <clears throat> so, here it is. He accounted that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence he also received him in a figure. A figure is a faith vision, which means before he ever put Isaac on the altar, by faith, he had already received Isaac alive again. God was either going to have to find another sacrifice or he was going to have to um, raise Isaac from the dead. 
But Isaac would not die that day, period. Um, go back to Genesis. Um, okay, let me see where we are here. Go to Genesis 22. See, this is, when Jacob gets in a test, he just falls apart. Woe is me. I'm suffering all the time. Everything terrible happens to me. When Abraham gets to a test, Abraham says, God, you're my covenant God. You're going to deal with this. And I'm going to come out of this okay because that's what you said. You said it. So look at Abraham's attitude. God has called him and said, put your son on the altar. Okay. Look at verse 1 in chapter 22. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham, try him. And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and get into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell you of. That's his only son, and God says, I want you to go offer him as a burnt offering. Okay? Now, in the movies... Isaac is about 12 and Sarah and Abraham are bawling their eyes out and squalling and crying and carrying on because this poor little boy is going to die on the altar. That's not it. Isaac was probably between 30 and 33. Interesting that Jesus was, was 33, isn't it? Um, but if you count the dates, Isaac was probably between 30 and 33. And so he was old enough to take his dad, who was well over 100. He could have taken him any time, you know. In fact, he was so strong, he carried the wood up the mountain for his dad for the sacrifice. Um, Jesus carrying the cross up the mountain. Pretty picture. But this is what they said before they went. Look at verse 4. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place far off. And Abraham said to his young men, Abide here with the ass. And I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. I and the lad will go up and worship and I and the lad will come again to you. He didn't say, and just me alone by myself, I'll, I'll be back. He said, we'll be back. Okay? We'll be back. He never doubted for a minute. He said, just stay right here. My son and I are going up on the mountain to worship and we'll come again to you. So Abraham was fully convinced that God was going to either spare his life or he was going to raise him up from the dead. But look down here because Isaac notices things are a little weird here. Look at verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife and they both of them went together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father... And he said, Here I am, son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. And so they went, both of them, together. He didn't say, You're the, you're the lamb. Sorry about that, son. You're the one. He said, No, God will provide. Don't worry about it. And they went up there. Abraham knew God. And so therefore... Abraham could receive the blessings of God because he believed God for the blessings. Didn't matter about the trials that were going on in his life. Didn't matter about the circumstances. 
He just trusted God and God blessed supremely just like he promised. But Jacob had encounter after encounter after encounter with the living God who had promised to protect him and deliver him when Jacob was in obedience with his vow. But never once in any of Jacob's troubles did he ever call on the name of the Lord. Not once. He never trusted the oath that God made to Abraham or Isaac or even to himself. He never once trusted in that. Um, it just, it boggles my mind how that is. But you know what? There are church people like that all over the place. They're all over the place. Let me just give you some parallels here, some things that the Lord showed me while I was looking at this. I was so frustrated with this story, okay? Um, this about Jacob and his life and his seed and the covering of God that belonged to Abraham. But Jacob was utterly bankrupt in faith, utterly bankrupt. And, and Jacob lived under grace. He didn't live under the law. So righteousness came only through faith. That's where righteousness was. God counted Abraham righteous because of his faith. And God called him a friend because Abraham ate with him. Abraham sat down at that intimate meal with him and broke bread. And God said, he's not my servant. He's my friend. Abraham knew God intimately on a one-to-one -one basis. Now, you would think Jacob would know him intimately. He wrestled all night with him at one point, you know. Um, and still, Jacob has no concept of that. But there are people like that all over the church. It's one of the reasons the church is so weak. And I'm not just talking about our church. I'm just talking about the church in general. People have encounters all the time with God. People hear the word of God. People hear prophets speaking about God. Um, and yet people do not ever enter into a personal relationship with the living God. They never get to know him. They know who he is. They know all about him. But they never open the door and let Jesus come in and sit down and enter into that meal of fellowship with them. It never happens. They want to be formal. They want to keep God up on that pedestal or whatever. But they never open the door. Here's Jesus knocking at the door, Revelations. Behold, I'm knocking at the door. Anybody who opens the door, I will enter in and suck with him, eat with him. Eat that fellowship meal. And they never did. Jacob didn't either. Jacob didn't either. So Jacob is a man. All his life's been a wanderer and oppressed. His life has been marked by struggle after struggle and sadness and heartbreak. The covenant promises of Abraham belonged to Jacob, but he was blinded to that truth by the world's lures and his own pride. By not entering into a personal relationship with God and not teaching his sons about the richness in covenant with God, the door was open to tragedy for all of them, and Jacob never cried out to God for mercy. As for the nation of Israel, prophetic here, their story has been the same. Um, they're proud, they're drawn to the world's truth, so they spend their lives scattered and wandering. They're never all of them together, ever, never. They are still waiting for deliverance and mercy and blessing through Messiah who's already come. And their waywardness and their blindness to the true covenant in Abraham has led them to the world's ways and opened the door to tragedies uncountable. Uh, you know, just uncountable. You can't even fathom the tragedies that the that the the children of Israel have suffered through their history. Um, 
Every time they cry out to God, he moves. But they don't cry out enough. You know, they don't cry out enough because they don't have that relationship. Grace and mercy have always been there because of the faithfulness of Abraham. But they don't acknowledge that. So when Jacob and his sons finally encounter Joseph, who is a type of Christ, face to face, and they finally put their full trust in him to deliver and protect them, they are immediately covered. No matter how badly they persecuted and mistreated Joseph, no matter um, um, how evil they were, and even though they're in Egypt, a type of the world, they are separated, protected, blessed, and made whole. When they bow down before Joseph as Lord, and they acknowledge Joseph as a Lord that can protect them, he immediately covers them. He immediately protects them. He forgives them for everything, and the grace and mercy flow on his family. They thrived and they multiplied into the great nation that God promised Abraham would come. So likewise, when Israel recognizes Messiah and trusts in him, he will deliver them. He's going to set up his kingdom in Israel and that nation will thrive for a thousand years. No matter what they've done, no matter how far they've roamed, no matter how much they've broken covenant, no matter how far out of faith they've been, Jesus is going to set up his throne in Israel. So this is the question to me. Why does it take the crucible of fire every time to bring people to the God of covenant? This is the difference. Sometimes they come to the covenant of God. But what they have to do is come to the God of covenant. And there's a big difference in that. The Lord showed me that. He said, it's not to the covenant of God that they have to come. It's to the God of covenant that they have to come. And I went, wow, amen, Lord. That's true. You know, um, when Jesus was talking to the Jewish people, and he said, you're worried about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, and how you're going to live, just like Jacob. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his way of doing and being right. Seek God first. Then everything else will be added to you. Don't keep going to church and offering lambs and, and cows and all that kind of stuff and thinking that your good deeds are going to do anything for you. Seek first God and his kingdom, the God of covenant, you know. And then all those things will be added to you. Um, so Jacob's in the crucible now. And the famine is raging. It's into the second year. And Jacob's family has eaten all the corn from Egypt. And now Jacob is desperate enough to risk sending his sons back to Egypt and including Benjamin. So he's setting himself up, he thinks, for another heartbreak. Yeah. Hmm? Sandy, what do you mean when you say in the crucible? Crucible, to me, that's in a fire. You know, when you're in the... When you're in the middle of something awful, in the middle of a storm or a raging fire or a whatever you want to call it, but that's Big what problem. a crucible is. Yes. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was telling the guys in prison, I said, I know. <clears throat> I'm thankful, you know, that you guys have had to hit the wall at 500 miles an hour. It's not the way God wants you to come to him. But if that's what it takes to get your attention, then I'm grateful for the fire. Because here you are around the table trying to learn something about the living God that can deliver you and change your life. 
you know. But, um, and that's the way Joseph is. So he's back in the crucible. And honestly, don't we all get religious when the heat goes up? I mean, seriously, don't we? Even though we know him, even though we have a, re a relationship with him, if we know him at all, we get really religious when things get bad, you know. We start quoting all these little quaint sayings and, you know, well, God's ways are higher than ours. We don't understand them. You know, God's not going to give us more than we can bear. God's going to take care of this sooner or later. May not be the way we want, but he'll figure it out. Come on, that's just, that is so typical. And people that don't know him go to the covenant of God, not to the God of covenant. So we get really religious, but not relational. And, it's, and there's a whole lot of difference. But honestly, they go what they know. And That's right. It's not. Oh, you said that right. They they go what they know. And, and Amen. And, and Couldn't have said it better. You can't fault them if they have not learned the right things, and that is partially the responsibility of our ministers and right. us. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. It is. But here we are, and we're willing to share with anybody that crosses our paths. Right. Well, I don't think we are all the time. Oh, see, you I know? I'll be willing to tell well, anybody know, anytime. Know you know, I know, but I think there's there are times in our lives where where we haven't done that, and I'm getting better at it. But it's it's easy not to do that. 